0: Hello, everybody. Greg Kokel here. Uh, show us stand to reason. Thank you for joining me here. And before I get into my opening remarks, which I'm looking forward to chatting with you about, just an update coming up. What is it? A week and a half now, right? Just a week and a half. We've got um, hmm, 901 signed up for Pennsylvania, Philadelphia area for our next reality. That would be our fifth of six in this season. Um, we can take 1,100, so we got about uh, 200 seats left. But I, I'm just very confident, in light of the pattern that we've seen all year long, that those seats are going to go. We've sold out everywhere, except for the church that holds 4,400, and we put 3,300 in there, and that's in Minneapolis, the largest church in the state there, uh, Grace Church, Eden Prairie. But So that's a sellout as far as I'm concerned. It looks like we're heading for that in Pennsylvania. Of course, March 25th and 26th, that's the reality date there Uh, in Augusta, Georgia. The next month, we'll have April 22nd and 23rd. We have 377 that are already signed up six weeks out, and uh, I think it takes about 1,000. So we are one-third... Of the way full for Georgia. So uh, I encourage you to go. If you are interested, you're within striking distance of either of those two events, go to realityapologetics.com and get all the information. We are just knocking it out of the park. <coughs> Excuse me, I probably shouldn't say it that way. We are just knocking it out of, par- of the park uh because it 's just not like us it's it's a whole it 's everything that 's go, God is doing i 'm trying to think of the best way to say it without trying to offer kind of a religious platitude oh it 's all god, none of me i don 't believe in that I think it 's a hundred percent God and a hundred percent us how this works out, but we are working hard God is working hard it 's been working out wonderfully, and we 've just been watching it expand, and kids get excited and we 're thrilled okay we 're just thrilled. So, um, Philadelphia, March 25th and 26th, Augusta, Georgia, April 22nd and 23rd. All the details are at RealityApologetics.com. Okay, last time around, I think, I was talking about a talk I give on occasion that uh, communicates important information about spiritual growth. I've been around the block for 48 years now as a follower of Christ, and um, a lot of times we don't talk about the challenges that Christ presents for us. And uh, this particular talk that I gave a week and a half ago to a men's retreat um, is not an apologetics talk. In fact, apart from the story of reality, which is mildly apologetics, not really. I didn't give any apologetics talks that whole weekend. Uh, I was thrilled to be able to talk about being an ambassador, talk about being about never read a Bible verse, talk about no pixie dust for hard realities of spiritual growth, and then on Sunday morning, the story of reality. But I love teaching the Bible, just doing that, not apologetics. And sometimes we need to be... um, encouraged in a very particular way about the nature of the reality of the Christian walk. And uh, one of the details, or one of the things that I say in this talk is that I think that there are a lot of... So let me just get off the talk and let me just talk to you. (laughs) I think there are a lot of Christians that are somewhat flummoxed, um, somewhat um, dissatisfied with their... Christian walk or maybe feel defeated when they are perfectly normal, productive, growing Christians who feel that way because of their unrealistic expectations of what spiritual growth actually entails. And so, what I did last week is I talked about two of those what I call hard realities of spiritual growth. One of them then, is that spiritual growth is perplexing. In fact, I just faced something this last week, where I thought a certain chain of events was going to end up in one place, and it ended up in an entirely different place. And these were weighty issues. I don't want to go into details about them, but the there were weighty issues, and and uh, that has has me on tender hooks, so to speak. And and I I I, I needed things to go a certain way, and these things are not resolved, and they didn't go the way I expected. I don't know, maybe the next week they'll resolve themselves, we'll see, but sometimes the point is when we try to—we we think we know what God is up to, He shows us we don't. And that's what I mean by spiritual growth is perplexing. Um, I used to say confusing, but some people took umbrage with that. So, now perplexing, because that's precisely the word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We are perplexed, but not despairing. And the point I was making there is there, it's going to be hard to make sense of many things in your spiritual life as you walk with God. I, I just, that's the only way I, I know how to say it. We have confidence that we are in His hands, we have confidence that He has rescued us from ourselves in many ways, we have hopes for the future of making a difference for the kingdom, and we have hopes even in our individual life, but those things are not necessarily going to work out the way that we thought they were going to work out, and that's perplexing. I remember, and again, I'm not sure if I actually shared this last week or not, but I remember watching a little clip of a movie uh, many years ago. I was channel surfing <laughs> as a single guy, and I caught this little clip of an old black-and-white film, and it was a man and a woman talking together, and they were reading something reflectively, and all I remember is what the man said, or I should say read, which he read twice because it was so meaningful to him, and then I moved on, but I didn't forget what it was. And what he said is uh, a man's life... Is like a diary in which he means to write one story, but he writes another. A man's life is like a diary in which he means to write one story, but he writes another. Sometimes the story that actually ends up being written is better than what we had in mind. Sometimes it's not better, but it's always going to be different. That's kind of the point. Life catches us by surprise. Was it John Lennon who said, life is what happens while you're making other plans. I don't usually like quoting him, but it's a good observation. So spiritual growth is perplexing. And my part of my point was that's okay. We don't have to have it all figured out because we're not in control. God is in control, and that's where our trust is put. Now, I don't say this glibly. I don't think this is easy. When you are walking with God even as it says in Proverbs, uh, and I'm looking for the for the verse here, man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How, then, can man understand his way? The presumption of the writer there in Proverbs is, of course there's going to be perplexing confusion, if you will, from our perspective, if God is the one who's calling the shots. Okay, and I, I love Lewis's characterization of Aslan, the, the, the analog to Jesus Christ in our own lives, pictured in those books, Aslan is not a tame lion. Perplexing, yes, but that's okay, because God can accomplish what he wants, whether we make sense of the process or not. That was the first point. The second point I made was spiritual growth takes time, and lots of it. And, um, you know, I noticed something in Paul's life. When he—Paul, the great apostle Paul, right? Okay, he he written so much of the New Testament, not most of it. Luke actually has more words, but Paul is the chief <clears throat> theolo- the- the- theological craftsman there for us, right? And he says in his first book, Galatians, he says, I, Paul—I'm paraphrasing here, but I, Paul, an apostle chosen not by men but by Christ, you know. So there's almost—it seems almost like there's a borderline attitude there. I'm not taught by men. I'm ta- I took the message that Jesus gave me, and I passed it by the pillars, and they said, I'm okay, I haven't been running in vain, etc., but there's just—there is this—he's front and center with his authority. Later on in his life, though, I noticed— in 1 Timothy, he is talking about Christ coming to save sinners, and then he identifies himself as the foremost of all. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. Yet I found mercy. It's it, just interesting to me that, the, in a certain sense, the younger Paul was flashing his creds in his positive creds, and the the much more mature, further down the line, Paul is flashing a different set of creds, greatest of sinners. And I think there's something there, that the, the more you grow in Christ, the more aware you are of your own sinfulness, to put it simply. Oh, I was talking about this with someone, and he said, the reason is we're standing closer to the mirror. (laughs) I thought that was pretty clever. Because it's James that uses the mirror as an illustration or an analog to the law. We look in the law. Okay, the mirror, it's a mirror to us. And uh, when we look at it, then we go away and forget what we saw, is what James' point is. But this use of the metaphor I think is clever. We get closer and closer to the Lord. We, we are actually growing, but inside there maybe is a sense of, of feeling like we're going backwards, because I think we have a deeper sense of our own frailty, our own inadequacies, again, our own sin, to put it simply. And so, I think this figures into the feeling of spiritual growth lagging from our perspective. It's taking more time to get where we thought we'd be a long time ago, but we're not. But that's okay, my point being, because because time is an important factor in real change, okay? And so, therefore, well, what I say in my notes is we can rest in the process. Yeah, easier said than done. I get it. Nevertheless, it's true. The more that we have confidence in God's working in his timing in our own lives, the more we can say, okay, I'm not driving this ship. You are, Lord. I'm I'm kind of along for the ride in a certain sense. Take it where you want. But this brings me to the third point that I want to spend a little time on here, and that is that spiritual growth not only is perplexing, spiritual growth not only takes a lot more time than we imagined, but spiritual growth actually hurts. And this is not a popular teaching, but it is the truth. I have mentioned before a concern, and I experienced it just this last weekend visiting a church in our community. A concern for what, what what I think amounts to an inappropriate triumphalism. Miracles everywhere, everything's wonderful. God is great. Well, God is great. I'm not taking exception with the truth of the statement, but notice this is coming from people that are really jazzed. Amy and I had a conversation about this on STR Ask hashtag STR Ask about people saying God answered my prayer. He's faithful wait a minute, is he only faithful when he answers your prayer? Isn't he faithful when he doesn't answer your prayer? Isn't that God? Faithful regardless? Or do we just rah-rah-rah God when things are going well? And I think this is what happens a lot in church communities. We're going rah-rah-rah-rah, God is faithful, God is faithful, God is faithful, but we're reading that in our own minds in a certain way with a certain experience. And there are a lot of people in the midst of the rah-rah-rah at a church service that aren't experiencing that, but they don't let anybody know. They're putting on a happy face because they think everybody else is doing fine, even though I'm not. And I will just tell you quite uh, candidly that my own Christian life has been punctuated by seasons of extreme difficulty, emotional pain, and turmoil. And some of those seasons have been very very long. In fact, when I was a younger Christian, those seasons were shorter, and as I have gotten older in the Lord, those sis, those seasons linger longer. Now again, I'm not I'm not looking for sympathy. I'm just being candid with you, not for my sake, but for your sake. Because part of my presumption here is that my life isn't different from yours in any significant way that has to do with walking with the Lord. I have different gifts than you do, I have different opportunities than you do, but I'm just a brother in the Lord. Walking through this strange thing called a relationship with God, just like you are. And the fact is, the older you get, the more it hurts. Now, some people are going to take exception with that. Okay, if that's not the way it is for you, and you've been around for a long time, well, I I have no beef with you. But when you talk to people who have known the Lord for a long time in a deep and profound way, people who are profoundly used of God, you will notice, you will discover that this is characteristic of their lives. In fact, I, I, I actually don't have it in front of me now, I should have brought it, but C.H. Um, Spurgeon made an observation, and I actually read this observation every week to keep my own perspective in balance. And basically what he said is, every person who has been used significantly of the Lord has in his or her life a, a a a a secret chastisement or a hidden cross they bear that others don't know about that God allows to keep them from exalting themselves lest they fall into the snare of the devil and my my as I've talked with different people and encountered Christian leaders, for example, and others who are not visible but still walk with the lord this is this is true why? because God uses pain, suffering, and difficulty to make the changes he needs to to make and so here i I want this to sink in, and it it's something I have to continue to remind myself of. And that is that change happens in people's lives. People do change. But generally, it does not happen unless it's more painful to stay the same than it is to change. Change happens, but usually not unless it's more painful to stay the same than to change. And that means God has to heat stuff up for us. He's got to heat up our lives, and we get more and more uncomfortable, and then it hurts, and then it hurts more, and it hurts for a long time, and then finally something moves. Deep down inside of us, something begins to move, begins to change. What happens with most Christians, I should say many Christians, I don't know if it's most or not, but I do know it has to, given the ethic of our culture, where pain is shame, right? And pleasure, not anguish, is the thing we are, we are told to idolize. Um, what happens for many Christians is that when the pain comes and the pressure's on, they run from the very thing that God has does, designed to make the most change in their life. They run from the pain. Instead of facing it and asking, what does God have in this hardship for me personally? Oh, wait, God works all things for good. Yeah, keep reading. Let me just give you the whole passage. And again, forgive me if I've said this to before, but uh, repetition is the mother of learning, right? For we know that God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. What would that purpose be? Keep reading. For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. God's going to use this hardship in our life. Yeah, for good. Yeah. I lost my girlfriend. I'll get a prettier one. No. I lost my job. I'll get more money next time around. No, not necessarily. God is going to use the hardship that you're experiencing to make you more like Jesus. That is what his commitment is. All right? And, uh, I mean, there's a simple little aphorism that I have found helpful in the past, and that is, life is hard, and then you die. (laughs) Now, those who know me know that I'm not a dour a uh, pessimistic kind of person. See, Amy's smiling at me and nodding affirmingly. But I, I try to be realistic about this. And by the way, when you go to the text, it's amazing how much of this is in there. Um, I think I've mentioned before that the book of Hebrews was written to suffering Christians. The book of First Peter was written to suffering Christians. It says that right at the outset. The book of uh, Philippians is written to suffering Christians. 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Suffering Christians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians and and 2nd Timothy at least were written by Paul in prison. Um, I always marvel too uh, that when Acts chapter 24 there's Felix who's trying to do the Jews a favor Paul's in prison so he leaves him in prison for 2 years. And then wait a minute what do you mean and then what happened in those two years? It's just two years. He's in prison. We don't know what happened. He's just in prison for two years. <laughs> That's not fun. That wasn't part of my plan. Maybe not his, but Paul understood that he was expendable for the cause. Philippians, in fact, he says, "If I am being poured out as a drink offering on this, on, as a sacrifice on behalf of your faith, okay, I rejoice. That's good. I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that." <laughs> Paraphrase. So I'm going to read a couple verses for you, just to put this in perspective. And and, and again, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to put it in perspective. Because I think that there's a lot of people that are going through some hard things, or will be going through some hard things, that that have or will create discouragement about their Christian lives. I know that, and I understand that, because pain, emotional, physical, whatever, has a way of doing that. It has a way of making us feel abandoned. Look at Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me far from... Well, he's citing here the first verse of Psalm 22, and the second verse helps us to understand what he's going through. Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. He's not doubting God there. He is God. He's, 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 he's agonizing under the anguish of suffering alone. Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. And we find ourselves in similar situations for, in a certain sense, a kind of parallel purpose or reason. That is, God had a purpose for Jesus in doing that. Uh, And Jesus was willing to surrender to the Father. And in the same sense, God has a purpose for us in the much more modest anguishes that we are to endure in this life. So, the verses, I'm just going to offer a few of them. The speaking of Jesus as our model, Hebrews 2.10, For it was fitting for him, Jesus, for whom all are all things, and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering so i misspoke there it was fitting for god that's the hymn there for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation jesus through sufferings anyway there's it there's the there's the the means and the end okay um first peter 4 i love this Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though something strange were happening to you. Okay? It's not strange. Ordinary. Next chapter, First Peter 5. Peter warns uh, his readers to be on the alert. The adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's dangerous. Okay, how do you deal with it? Verse 9 and 10, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by our brethren who are in the world. And, he adds, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his glory in Christ Jesus will himself perfect confirm strengthen and establish you and there's many more verses I could read here um we need to go to break in a moment but I want to just end with one I've mentioned many times and in fact when I sign one a book at a reality to a young person and they ask me to leave a verse reference I always put down second Corinthians chapter four verses 16 through 18, which includes the statement for momentary light affliction. Let me pause for a moment on that. Wait, this is Paul writing, momentary light affliction. He's talking about the hardship of this lifetime. What we endure in our four score and ten, momentary light. Wait a minute, Paul. Paul, you're the guy, right, who was whipped four times, 39 lashes each you were beaten with rods three times. You were shipwrecked twice. You were stoned in Lystra once, left for dead. You call that light affliction? Yes. Momentary? Yes. Because he's making a comparison from the temporal thing to the eternal thing. For a momentary light affliction is producing. It's the means that God uses to accomplish an end is producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Paul says in Romans 8, I count the sufferings of this present life to be no comparison to the glory that is to be revealed. And then he continues there in 2 Corinthians 4, while we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are perishing, but the things that are not seen are eternal. So this is the answer here. As difficult as it is, I am not being glib, trust me. In the hardships of our lives, as difficult as it may be, we have to continue to remind ourselves that this is momentary, and by comparison to the great glory to follow, it is light affliction. And we can fix our minds completely on the hope that is set before us, the promise of Christ Jesus. All right? Spiritual growth is perplexing. Spiritual growth takes time. Spiritual growth hurts. That's okay, because pain is redeemed by God And it's a precious part of our growth. All right, let's take a break. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. When you choose to support Stand to Reason with a monthly gift of $10 or more, you become a strategic partner in the work of equipping Christian ambassadors. Your monthly commitment makes you a part of a special group, helping STR train Christians to confidently and graciously defend their convictions. Your monthly gift helps us plan and manage STR's resources and provides consistent support to aid our ongoing work. As our thanks for your partnership, we have created some benefits to express our gratitude, like a 10% discount in our online store, access to a private Facebook group, and more. To become a strategic partner, visit str.org slash donate. Click how often will you donate and choose monthly. For personal assistance, you can email Ocean Wilson at ocean at str.org The world says you can be a boy or a girl. You can be gay or straight. You can be cis or trans. There's no right or wrong way to define yourself. No one can tell you who you are. You decide who you want to be. And whatever that is, it can change whenever you want. That's because your identity is untethered to reality. It's chaos. But you don't have to listen to the world. You can listen to a different account of who you are, one told by your maker And this one is anchored to Reality and will bring you from chaos to clarity. Don't miss this year's Reality Conference. Go to realityapologetics.com to get dates and locations for the Student Apologetics Event of the Year. All right, friends, Greg Copel here, and a little lean on calls today. I didn't give the number. Maybe I should. 855-243-9975. 855-243-9975. Of course, that's the the number you call if you want to get on the show that's live, which is on Tuesdays from 4 until 6 p.m. Los Angeles time, now daylight savings time. It's always a weird adjustment, isn't it? Isn't it weird? I don't know why they do that. Why don't they just leave it alone, you know? In any event, I think we're stuck with it. There's some rumor that they're going to try to make daylight savings time, like, permanent. All right, fine, just one or the other. Not all this moving back and forth, because you end up missing church, right? That's what happened I went to the 11 o'clock service. It was packed out because all the people that were late for the 9 o'clock service— they were at the eleven, so it was standing room only. It looked like a big success. It was only because you had a bunch of loser people didn't move their clocks. Uh, by the way, just um, updating you on some things happening with STR. I told you already about Philadelphia uh, reality and Georgia reality. That's moving great. Uh, let's see. John Noyce is going to be live on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube on Wednesday next. So that'll be March 23rd. Mark that. 12 p.m. Pacific. Standard time, it's PDT now, Pacific Daylight. Uh, for his to the point live, and you can go to str dot org and scroll down to the bottom for links to our social media channels. But that's uh, March twenty third, twelve pm. Uh, yeah, that's noon, right? Okay, good. Also, Alan Schleeman's going to be in uh, Santee, California, on Saturday, April second, and he is. Uh, let's see, what is he talking on here? Uh, it's not the, I don't have the details, but it's Carlton Oaks Baptist Church's Evangelism Seminar, Santee, California, Saturday, April 2nd. So, look, you can check this all out on our website. Amy Hall, you're going to be doing a live Q&A on Facebook. Oh, my goodness. Now, Amy, did you know that? Yeah, there it is. She did not look excited. Oh, she's excited. No, because... He, She's our uh, Ask the Apologist at uh, Realities, and she is on her feet from 9 in the morning till 5 in the evening, constantly answering questions at Reality. She is a real trooper. Well, if you missed her at Reality to ask her your questions, you can go to Facebook. Wednesday, April 6th, 1 p.m., Pacific Daylight Time. <laughs> there it is again. And again, visit our Facebook page uh, if you want to submit your question, and Amy will answer uh this will be by the way text only no video so she will be on video uh, wait amy will you be on video on that, or your only text? Okay, so it's so you won't get to see Amy. You'll just be able to benefit from her typing. But she's a very fast typist. She types so fast that she has already rubbed the paint off of her, off of some of her numbers on her. I was looking at that today. All right, so that's coming up, and uh, then uh, Tim Barnett, Mister B, will be at uh, Bridgepoint Fellowship Church in Texas on uh, on Sunday, April tenth, and I don't know where that is. In Texas, So I'm just reading my announcements. But if you live in Texas, you may want to drive over to Bridgepoint, which could be a long drive depending on where that is and where you live. Go to our str.org, and uh, there's a section there that talks about who is where and doing what, and you'll get all the information for all those events. All right, so now I'm sans callers. I am going to... Uh, I'm going to, t- to, to take a couple of questions that have been passed on to me one way or another through email uh, or people have um, texted it or something. Um, so here's one from Benny in Texas, and it has to do with where moral laws come from. Now, I talk about this a lot, and, it, and that's good uh, because this issue is really important it's important because the whole issue of morality obviously affects the behavior our behaviors our lives it has powerful ramifications manifestations both for daily living um and it also has ramifications for the question of god uh, some people think the problem of evil is a good argument against god it's just the opposite in my view, because if there is evil, that means in the world, that means there's got to be a standard in the world that measures evil. and the question is where does the standard come from? Now, if you're a materialist or an atheist you have you can't help yourself to that standard, though people do it all the time uh, you have to you have to you, if you're going to complain about the problem of evil, the way most people complain about it and the way most people raise the issue is not as an internal contradiction for Christianity. That's called the deductive problem, and that problem is not brought up hardly ever anymore because it's been resolved quite a long time ago. Uh, it, there is no necessary contradiction between God's goodness and his power and the existence of evil, as it turns out. I do write about that in the story of reality, but. We have other places on our website we talk about that. But anyway, that's not the way it's usually raised. It's usually raised, if your God is real, and he's good, and he is powerful, then why is there so much evil in the world? That's the issue. And of course, they're right. There is evil in the world. In the world. They are acknowledging the reality of bad stuff that happen. I got it. I'm with you on that. The the resolution of that question aside, to raise the question, there's got to be bad stuff in the world. In order for for there to be bad stuff, there's got to be laws of some sort that are broken that allow us to uh, make sense of what we call badness. You can't break the speed limit if there are no speed limits, and you can't have any speed limits to be broken if there is no government passing speed limit laws. So there's just a very quick analysis of why, if there is evil in the world, there's got to be a transcendent God to ground that transcendent morality, which is violated with transcendent evil, okay? That's a predicate to the question here. And um, this particular person is is saying that, is, is raising the question about whether it's it makes any sense to talk to postmodernists about morality as if it's objective because they don't accept moral beliefs and the way he puts it here they are they use what used to be called situation situational ethics relative to a moral outcome and um, so the claim here is you've got a whole group of people who don't care about morality instead they are committed to what he calls situational ethics, all right, which is that um, the, it's the, the way he's using it. The situation determines your ethic, okay? Now, I need to clarify some things here because there's a bit of confusion in the question. First of all, situation ethics, situational ethics is capital S, capital E, and the reason is because is it's a proper noun, and the reason It's a proper noun, is because it is an ethical system that has been uh, promoted by a guy named Joseph Fletcher many years ago, 40, 50 years, well, 40 years ago at least. All right. And um, his view, his, oddly, his situational ethics system was an objectivist system, not a relativistic system at its core. He said, the the moral absolute that ought to govern everything is the absolute of love. And so, in every situation, you are obliged to do the loving thing. Now, unfortunately for Joseph Fletcher, it was not really clear exactly how love was to be defined to guide our actions. That sounds like a biblical ethic, but in the Bible we have, um, we have clarity on what love is. And it's not mere acceptance of other people's behavior, or you know, in that in 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 that view, it's possible. Certainly, the way people apply it nowadays, to promote immoral sexuality based on love. After all, love is love, right? Okay. See, that's. So, even though the ethic is objectivistic, in application it turns out to be very relativistic because the word love has lost any meaningful definition, the kind of definition that we see clearly in Scripture. Self-sacrifice, not rejoicing uh, in unrighteousness, but rejoicing in the truth, that kind of stuff, all right? So, situational ethics is an objectivist view. Here's the second concern here in this question, and the second concern is that All truth statements are relative to the circumstances. The truthfulness of any statement depends on the circumstance that the statement is applied to. So I say, I am sitting here in the studio having dinner. Well, that's not true because I'm not doing that. No, I'm here in the studio doing a radio show. Well, that's true at the moment. 2 hours from now it will not be true. The truth of the statement I am in the radio show, I'm sorry, in the studio doing a radio show depends on the circumstances it is speaking to. When the claim corresponds to the set of circumstances and it matches then it's called true. So the situation always is a factor in any truth statement and this applies even to moral claims. So is it is it is it is it uh is it wrong to cross the street here? Um depends. Depends on what? The situation. Like what? Is the light green or red? <laughs> If it's red and you cross, you're breaking the law, and you shouldn't break the law. If it's green, you're not breaking the law, you can cross. Same action, crossing the street, it's it's right in one set of circumstances, and wrong in another set of circumstances. It is not situational ethics. It is, it is proper moral assessment based on the circumstances that we're facing. Okay? So all moral claims depend on the details of, of the circumstances. Can I push grandma? Well, it depends. But when would it be okay to push grandma? When grandma's in the way of a speeding car and you're trying to save her life. Oh, you mean in that circumstance? Yes, in that circumstance. Or if you will, will in that situation. All right. Now with that in mind, knowing that situational ethics is something different, we're not talking about that here. But we are talking about moral moral activity being determined Right or wrong, dependent on the circumstance, that's not relativism. That is objectivism, all right? Relativism is when it's relative to the subject, the individual, not to the situation. So if I say, well, it's true, it's right for me to do this under this set of circumstances, but you in the same set of circumstances, it could be wrong for you, that's relativism. Circumstances are the same, different morality because of different subjects, different people. That's relativism. Now, the question here is, do young people care? And th- there. Is a, it's a trick question, <laughs> and the answer is, um, on the one hand, they do, and on the other hand, they don't. Maybe it's not a trick question, it's a trick answer. Uh, our culture now is deeply narcissistic. By the way, that's always been true but it seems to be more celebrated now than ever before, all right? It is deeply narcissistic. Uh, People are, at least to talk to them, uh, to believe in moral relativism, I have my truth, you have your truth. People like being relativists regarding their own behavior. They do not like relativism when others practice it on them. And the minute they do, they scream bloody murder. And what they scream, they scream it in objectivist terms. That is wrong. You shouldn't be doing that to me. Really? I thought you were a relativist. How is it I shouldn't be doing stuff? Who, who made that rule up? Your grandma? You see, th- that's what relativism amounts to. You... If you want to be, if that's your view, okay, then live by it. But that's this is a case where you live by the sword, you die by the sword, kind of thing. Then everybody gets to live by it. If that's the nature of reality, there's no objective morality. Then it's just power that's left. Got that? So um, it turns out, in spite of the fact that this is a culture that's deeply narcissistic and talks relativistically. It turns out that way deep down inside, they're actually common-sense moral realists. In other words, they know better. They know there's objective morality, and this is why they talk about it so often, especially when it's their ox that's being gored. Okay? So, uh, I, I just want you to think about that. It is related to what I call the... Uh, inside-out tactic that God is built inside of every human being in virtue of being made in the image of God. There are things we can't get away from, and one of them is, is a moral nature. Okay? Our moral natures are built in. Even when we deny that there is such thing as morality, the inside speaks out when we're not guarding it. So can the moral argument be used with young people? Yeah, I think in certain circumstances, they're going to be resistant to it in some ways because they're so relativistic. Appealing to honor, watching John Adams, the HBO special, which is magnificent. We've had it around for years. We've seen it before. But there, to our founders, honor and duty meant something. They were objective moral goods. And appealing to those things Uh, was persuasive. Nowadays, it doesn't make any sense to most people to to appeal to honor or duty. It's the way our culture is. Nevertheless, there's something that they know. There is a moral law, and they have broken it. And this is why people feel guilty. People feel guilty because they are guilty. And that is something that we can trade on, we can depend on, we can leverage in, in our conversations with other people. Their deep, profound, and true sense of moral guilt. Even though they're hiding from it, they try to mask it with activity and other pleasures. It's still there. That's not a silver bullet. It isn't like magical, but there is something there to appeal to that is real and true, even when the culture is saying Loudly, no. Methinks thou dost protest too much. We know better. So anyway, there. I'm just going to leave you with that for the show. And uh, (laughs) end with a flourish. Thanks for being part of what we have to do here at Stand to Reason. I'm Greg Coco for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven. Bye bye.